Amen. Okay, great. We are continuing our series, uh, which we've been going through. And throughout this series, we've been looking at uh, Jesus's final journey into Jerusalem. And we've said that he's been surrounded by different people. There's his disciples, those who want to follow him. There's the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They hate Jesus. They want to kill him. And there's the crowd who hadn't decided either way, but they like the teaching. They like the miracles. They like being fed on the bread and the fishes. And so we've got to imagine this is the context to what Jesus, uh, you know, where he's teaching in. And where we're up to in the journey, as Quincy spoke about last Sunday from the verses immediately before these, is that the religious leaders asked Jesus this question. I put it in your notes there. They said to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. And those religious leaders, they hoped that they would get Jesus to commit blasphemy by saying that he was doing them because he's the son of God. And then they could tell the people he's committed blasphemy. He said it himself, stone him. But of course, number one, it wouldn't have been just blasphemy because Jesus is God. And number two, Jesus is much too clever to get caught out on their little trap. And so he says to them, look, I'll answer your question if you answer one of my questions. And he says, okay, John the Baptist, <clears throat> the guy who came before me, did his authority come from God or not? And if they say yes, he'll say to them, so why didn't you follow him then, religious leaders? So they don't want to say yes. And if they say no, they're worried that the very same crowd will stone them because the crowd believed that John the Baptist was sent by God. And so guess what they say? We don't know. (laughs) That's what they say. So Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you then. If you want more about that, listen to Quincy's preach. There's more in it than that. But that's essentially what happened. That's where we're up to in Luke. And Jesus, having told them, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to answer this question about where does my authority come from, he then proceeds to tell them a parable explaining where his authority comes from. Do you get that? He says, I'm not going to tell you. Then he tells a parable, telling it. And Jesus knows what he's doing. Right? He knows exactly what he's doing and why. And the religious leaders know what he's doing and why. He's answering their question, but in a way that they will know, and we, after the event, when it's written down, will know that he's referring to them. And they will know, the religious leaders will know, oh, he's talking to us. But the crowd will probably go, hmm, that's a good story. It's a good moral story. That's what Jesus is doing here. So clever. Anyone would think he was the son of God. Okay, let's go through. We're going to read Luke 29 to 19. It's in your notes. It may come up behind me. This is Jesus speaking. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. 
Let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Lord Jesus, we just want to ask by your Holy Spirit, would you open up our minds and open up our hearts that we might be instructed by your word this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's just spend a little bit of time, get our heads around this passage. So in the parable, Jesus tells a landowner plants a vineyard and he rents the vineyard out to a number of tenant farmers who are going to care for and harvest the crop. So the landowner owns the land, he plants the vines, but he has a deal with these tenant farmers. It's their job to look after the plants, their job to harvest the grapes, and then those grapes are going to be shared out between the owner and the tenant farmer. Does everybody get that? It's not a particularly difficult thing to get your head around, is it? So the owner, come harvest time, he sends one of his servants to the vineyard to collect his share, but the tenants, they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sends another servant and they do the same. And then he sends a third servant, same treatment. And so then the owner sends his son, whom it says he loves, in the hope the tenants might respect him and come to their senses and give him what is due to him, what they owe him, what was agreed. But actually the tenants talk with each other and they reason that if they kill the son, because the son is the heir to the land that they're on and possession is nine-tenths of the law, as we know, and then the son is dead, then they reckon that there'd be no one else to inherit the land and they will inherit the land. And so they kill the owner's son. And in the parable, the question is asked, what will the owner do? And the answer's given, he'll come, kill those farmers, give the land to others, which is just right, fair, in those circumstances. And in the passage, the response of the crowd to this parable is absolute shock. The terrible, wicked, murderous, selfish actions of the tenants. Oh, they exclaim, God forbid. God forbid this should happen. What a terrible thing. What a wicked Thing, how can this happen? I mean, not giving the owner what he's due is bad enough, but then beating and shaming his servants when they're, when they're sent is dreadful. But then killing his son, killing his son, that they might seize the land from the owner. This is just beyond the pale, isn't it? No, it is, it's terrible. This is, ah! And then Jesus looks at them and asks them a question, which is funny. He asks them a question, and the question he asks after telling this specific parable is a statement from, the, from a psalm in the Old Testament. So when it says Jesus looked at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, that says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus takes them to a statement in the Old Testament about a stone being rejected, but will actually become the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the stone from which all the other stones and walls take their position from. And actually, this once rejected stone will not only become the cornerstone, but it's somehow going to be the determining factor on whether people are crushed on it or crushed by it. And Jesus asked them in response to this crowd's exclamation that, oh, God forbid this should ever happen. He says, then who is this rejected cornerstone that was spoken of in the Old Testament? Who is it? Who was it? And the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the religious leaders, who, as we've said, hated Jesus immediately, they know Jesus is talking about them and he's talking against them. And they want to arrest Jesus, it says, right then and there. But they're afraid of the crowd who probably are standing there still trying to get their head around the fascinating parable and wondering, well, who is this kind of cornerstone? See, in the parable and in this passage, the religious leaders know that in the parable, the landowner represents God. The landowner represents God. They know the servants represent the various prophets that God has sent to the people over the years to teach the people and warn them of the consequence of their behavior towards God, many of whom the prophets they ignored, many of whom they killed. And in the parable, the son of the landowner represents Jesus, the son loved by the father, the true heir of all that the father owns and the one who ends up being killed. And in the parable, the tenants who rebel, who refuse to give to the owner what's due, who kill the son because they want to inherit what's not theirs, are the religious leaders themselves specifically. And more generally, the people of God at this time, Israel, who have forsaken God. And so they know what Jesus is saying. They know that he's answering that original question, by whose authority do you come and do and teach these things? His answer is that his authority comes from the fact that he is the beloved son of God who has come to call God's possession, God's creation, people, back to himself. That he is the cornerstone. My authority, says Jesus, comes from the fact that I am the cornerstone referred to in that psalm. And you are the ones who are rejecting me. You're rejecting me in your hearts right now because you're planning to kill me. Many of you are rejecting me in your hearts in a few days' time when you raise your voices when I get to Jerusalem and you cry out, crucify him, crucify him. He's the cornerstone by which those who reject him will either be smashed to pieces as they fall on him or will be smashed off pieces as he falls on them. In other words, their rejection of Jesus, the true cornerstone, is going to decide their final destiny, their ultimate destruction, as it were, for those who reject God. That's what's going on in this parable and as Jesus talks.
to the crowd and to the religious leaders. It's not light, is it? It's not light reading, is it? How people read the Bible and think that Jesus said a lot of light, nice, nicey-nicey stuff, I don't know. This doesn't sound very nicey-nicey to me. It feels to me like Jesus is punching them right between the eyes with the truth. What I want to focus on this morning is two things. Number one, I call it the badness of people, and number two, the goodness of God. Most preachers could probably go under those two headings, eh? The badness of people and the goodness of God. I think it's what is, is really here, though. The badness of people, or what theologians call the depravity of humanity. See, when you put in the form of a simple story like this parable, the way that people treat God, it is shocking. It is disgraceful. No wonder the people themselves say, God forbid. And here the focus is on the nation of Israel, this people that God chose and blessed and provided for and protected and made covenants with and promises with, and yet they continually disobey and reject him. That's the Old Testament right there in many ways. That This repeated story that the people of Israel, they walk with him and all's right, and then they ignore him, they forget him, they rebel against him, and God sends prophets to warn them and to urge them, turn back, turn back, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop offending God, stop doing what God told you not to do, and yet they kill the prophets, they ignore them. And so nations around, when God takes his hand off, come and overwhelm them and, and make them captive, put them in prison, start mistreating them. And then the people cry out to God, oh, we've been so foolish. Why did we do that? Why didn't we follow you? Oh, God, forgive us. We're so sorry for killing your prophets. Oh, we're sorry. And God moves and rescues them and frees them and saves them. And they're walking with God again. Thank you, God. You're so wonderful. And then a generation down the line, they do it all over again. That is, if you like, the story. And in this passage, I think Jesus is he's really saying that to the religious leaders. It's like he's saying to them, look, you know your history. It's written down for you in the scriptures that you claim to follow. It's even written down that God's going to send his son. He's going to rescue you. But many of you are going to reject him like your ancestors rejected the prophets. Well, I'm that son. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you're warned not to reject because I am the cornerstone. It's like Jesus is standing right in front of them, waving his arms like that. It's me. And they just look right past him, just spiritually blind to him. He tells them a story explaining how they are acting in the same terrible way their ancestors did when God sent his prophets. It's like to remind them, and you know how terrible it turned out for you when you rejected God's prophets. You know your history. You know what happened. You know that cycle. And he tells them this story, and he explains to them that you're doing exactly the same thing. Now it's not a prophet or in the parable a servant. It's the son. No, no, the son has come now. It's the son has come on behalf of the father. In other words, how badly do you think it's going to turn out for you if you reject the son? In the end, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be destroyed by the one that you rejected. And yet their re reaction is to reject, to rebel, 
Right there and then, they plot to kill the son in defiance of the father. And of course, this does apply to the people of Israel. That's who Jesus is talking to, to the religious leaders. But it actually applies to the whole of humankind. Let me just say this. No other nation or people group or family would have acted any different towards God, Jesus, or his prophets. No other nation. It's no good saying, oh, oh, that nation of Israel, they just got it so terribly wrong. If only God would have come and saved the British first. Are you with me? Oh, if only God would have saved somebody else. It's just foolish thinking because the seed of rebellion to God was sown into every human heart when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Jesus didn't just come to atone for the sin and rebellion of these chosen people. He came to deal with the problem of sin and rebellion that was sown into the heart of every person. And that sin just manifests itself with how the Israelites treated God. Are you with me? It's not their fault. It's not that they were bad. It's that we're bad. (laughs) And so they are just representative, if you like, of how people treat God. Why it says in Romans 5 verse 12, talking of Adam, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We wouldn't have acted any different. Any character you read in the Old Testament or a nation, you think, oh, why did they do that? Hey, listen, we would be the same, essentially. How the religious leaders treat God is just reflective of how people treat God. And that's what the theologians, in a sense, mean, the depravity of humanity, the badness of people, that we're created by God. We're put in a well created by him, that he gives us food and breath and water and sun. The world is the vineyard. We are his tenant farmers, and yet we don't want to acknowledge him. Like the farmers in the story, we don't want to give him his due. We don't want to heed his warnings. We don't want to recognize his lordship in our lives. We don't want to bow the knee. As Quincy said last week, We know that we need a king. We know that we want a king, but we don't want to make Jesus king because deep down, we want to be king of our own lives. Is that not true? We want to keep things that we think are ours by right, but they're not ours. They're not ours. The tenant farmers didn't own the farm. The owner owned the farm. (laughs) We want to live how we want to live. We want to do what we want to do no matter what God thinks. And in order to do that, just see how far to what lengths humanity will go. They will go to the extent of killing the owner's son in the parable, which mirrors in real life, humanity will go to the extent of putting Jesus, the son of God, on a cross rather than make him king in our lives. We would rather put Jesus on a cross then put him on a throne. That's what this parable, this story is explaining. I don't think we can help be shocked by this rejection, this, the wicked action. It provokes this genuine response, God forbid, and yet this is how we treat God. This is how we treat Jesus. Many of those, I'm sure, who exclaimed that day, God forbid, when Jesus told this story, would have been there a few weeks later in Jerusalem and lifted their voices to cry, crucify him, when he was on the cross. 
I'm not having a go at them. I'm just explaining and showing you that it's just a demonstration of their sin. Are you with me? It's not because they are ultra bad and we're ultra good. (laughs) It's because all humans have a problem with sin. And it's just a manifestation of that. Listen to this quote I found. I put it in your notes. Since the beginning of creation, humanity has sought to be like God without obeying God, to become lords of Eden rather than stewards of it. What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humanity can rule supreme? The tenants of the vineyard are the ultimate expression of human rebellion. They kill the air and seize the inheritance for themselves. It's a great quote, isn't it? I think it's a great quote. The depravity of humanity, the badness in a sense of people, the sin that is in people and what it causes is on display here in this story and this parable. And when I read it, I don't like it (laughs) because I see myself in it. I see the effects of sin in my life sometimes. That's the bad news. Are you ready for some good news? The goodness of God as shown in the character of Jesus. Again, three Ps. I'm on three Ps today. I must want to go to the loo. Three Ps. Patient, persistent, and permanent. Let's just look at this. Patient. One thing you see in this parable is how patient the owner is with his tenants. I mean, he sends three of his servants and his son to get them to do what they agreed and should have done without being asked, which, of course, mirrors God's amazing patience with people in general, including even the people of Israel, who he sent numerous prophets to over successive generations, despite how they treated him. God was still patient with them. If the rebellious and the depravity of humanity, sin, is a major theme of the Old Testament, just amazing is the patience of God who deals with those people. And I'm not talking here about patience, which is brought about because you don't have the power to change the situation. I'm not talking about those of you who commute every day up and down to London and have to wait patiently while the railway sorts itself out uh, each morning. I'm not talking about that kind of patience. It's not about waiting patiently because you can't do anything about it. There's another kind of patience where you do not act even though you have the right to, even though you have the power to, even though maybe everything inside of you wants to, but for the sake of the other person, for the sake of giving them the time to change, to repent, you wait. I remember this when the kids were little and they do something wrong and you're, you're, don't do that. And and you, you tell them off and you tell them. And it's like you could move to phase two, which is punishment phase which in my day was a smack, might now be on the naughty step. But do you know what I mean? The, the first thing you do is you face them up. To, don't do that. Don't do that. And then there's a moment, isn't there? There's a moment. You could just punish them, but you don't. Why? Because you're waiting for them to look you in the eyes. You want them to say, I'm sorry. Don't you? I'm sorry. So you wait patiently, even though you could tell them off and everything inside of you. Because you want them, you, for their benefit, you want them to say sorry. You want them to realize, and you don't want to have to, if you like, Really, you don't want to have to punish them. If they see they're wrong, that's fine. 
There's a waiting patiently like that. I think that's the kind of patience that I see from God in this story. In the parable, the owner could have gone and dealt with the farmers after they rejected the first servant. He had every right to. Here's the deal. Send my servant. You haven't done it. I'm coming to deal with you. He could have done it then. He could have done it after the second servant. Surely he's going to do it after the third servant. But no, he didn't. Because he kind of knows that once he acts, that he's going to act decisively. And when I go, it's going to be the end of it. When I go, it's going to be dealt with. And in the same way, God is patient with people who rebel against him, like even the religious leaders in this instant. And it's not because he can't do anything about it. It's because Jesus knows that once he acts, it will be decisive. The incredible patience of God. This kind of, it's not for my sake, it's for your sake, patience. It means that God chooses to allow people to sin against him and with all the consequence that has in order to give those very same people the opportunity, the time, the moment to come to their senses, to repent and to be saved. God is patient. He will wait. He's holding back right now from acting in terms of sin so that people can be saved. People think that God doesn't act in terms of the sin in the world because he doesn't care. But it is because God cares that he doesn't act right now. Do you understand that? Had God have acted 51 years ago, I wouldn't be saved. Because he knows that once he acts, he will act decisively. So God's patient. We know God's patient. God's been patient with me. I know God's been patient with you. When my thinking doesn't line up with God, he doesn't, he doesn't act out immediately because he wants, he wants to give us some time to get on the same page with him. But please don't make the mistake that God's patience is because he doesn't care or he isn't able. He's so often exercising patience because he's giving opportunity for us to come to our senses and to follow him with all our heart. He is patient. The second one that he is is persistent. God is persistent. When Jane and I had the dog as a puppy, we had to learn persistence again. We decided we weren't going to put a kind of mat down for her to pee on. We were going to take her out to go for a wee in the garden, which meant when she was a pup every two hours, picking her up, taking her out in the garden, saying, wee, 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 as the dog just, you know, wagged its tail like that, or whatever, wee, 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 wee. Just took persistence. I don't know how many hundreds of times we took her outside. Wee, 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 wee. People, I could hear one day, Two people walking down the pavement, hearing me over the fence. And I, wee wee, and I hear someone go, wee wee, over the fence. And we, we were persistent. Second thing we see from this parable is how persistent God is. I mean, in the parable, one servant, two servants, three servants, the son. In the Old Testament, we see God send one prophet, another prophet, another prophet, another prophet. Big chunk of the Old Testament are the prophets that God sent all essentially bring in the same message. There's a God. You made a covenant with him. He loves you, but you're not serving him. Repent. He's going to send his son one day to save you. 
Same message at root, prophet after prophet, sent to people, their stories written down, their commands and messages from God written down so that future generations might read and learn. Except, of course, generally future generations don't read and learn. We tend not to read and we tend not to learn. And in the parable, the owner was persistent, keeping on sending another message. How persistent was he? What lengths did he go to? If we had a persistent scale from one to ten, where would we score him on? I mean, surely having sent three servants, you could argue he'd done enough. He'd been persistent enough. And yet he chooses to send that which was most precious to him, his son whom he loves. In other words, his persistence can be measured by the fact that he can't send anyone more valuable to him, more important to him. He wasn't just a little bit persistent. He was as persistent as persistent could be. And our God, he's not only patient with us, but he is persistent. Persistent as he could be in sending his son Jesus. No better, no more valuable, no more precious messenger did God have to send than his son. Once we rejected prophet after prophet after prophet, so on the persistent scale, in order to call men and women like you and me back to himself, God did not try a little. God did not try a lot. God did everything he could. He gave that which was most valuable to himself, namely his one and only son, Jesus. Third one, permanent, which is interesting in times that we live in. See, in this parable, at no time do you pick up the idea that the tenants are going to get away with it. They might beat the servants. They might kill the son. They might rebel against the owner. They might believe that they will inherit the land, but they won't. In the parable, the owner, is, he might be, he'd be upset. His son got killed. Of course he's going to be upset. But there's no sense that he's panicking, he's out of control. There's no sense of the owner going, oh, no, they've taken the farm now. They've taken it all. What can I do? Nothing of that. The parable says, no, no, when the owner comes, he'll kill the tenants, give it to the land to others. Justice will be done. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. For a time, it looks like the tenants have got away with it. It looks like they've won. Looks like the owner is just overpatient. He's just going to keep on sending people. Well, we'll kill him. We've killed his son now. What does it matter? But the owner knows, no, no, justice will be done. And there's something about that, if you like, what I call permanent, permanence. What God's like. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. It says his God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said how the world would start, and that's how it started. He said that mankind sinned when Adam sinned. Mankind sinned when Adam sinned. He said he was going to send his son to die on a cross and save the world. He sent his son died on a cross, save people who would give their lives to him. He said how it will be in the end. It's how it will be in the end. In all the apparent chaos in the world today, and I'm sure every generation probably has said, in all the apparent chaos in the world today. Can't believe it. They're making meals and stuff that are going to replace whatever else. Yeah, I'm sure every generation has said, oh, the chaos of the world. Within it, there's a God who's permanent, whose plans are sure and certain, who does not change his mind or his ways or his values. And what he says are unchanging and will come about. There is something permanent. 
And I think that's what Jesus really focuses on this when he quotes in the Psalms about this stone that's rejected that becomes the cornerstone, referring to himself. And somehow how people respond to him will determine their fate. Will they make him the cornerstone of their lives and be saved? Or will they reject him? And it will be like that stone falls on them. There's a permanence, a definiteness, if only that were a word, about God, who he is, what he says. We see that about Jesus. Jesus living in the midst of these rebellious, fickle people, these crowd that kind of don't know what to make of him, the religious leaders that want to kill him, the Roman Empire that is just looking after themselves, trying to keep their power. And yet Jesus knows who his father God is. And he knows that what God says stands. And he understands his own role in that. It's obedience. It's submission on the cross. It's death, resurrection. It's ascension. And one day it's to inherit all those who place their trust in him. It's how Jesus is able to say to those disciples, to the crowd, to the religious leaders, to you and me today, I am the cornerstone. Build your lives on me. I'm the rock. I am a sure foundation. If you build your life on me, it will not sink. It will not crumble. If you put me as the cornerstone, every one of your walls, every area of your life can line up with me. Jesus, who is patient. Jesus, who is persistent. Jesus, in who he is and in what he says, is permanent. I want to encourage you today, if you're not a Christian, make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. Something is the cornerstone of your life. If it's not Jesus, it's probably you. <laughs> Much better to take yourself off the throne and to put him on the throne. He's a better king, and you're a better subject. If you are a Christian, and I want to make, say to you, make sure every area of your life is built on the cornerstone that is Jesus. Every wall, every part of your life, your time, your money, your talents, what you're living for, make sure that all of it is on the rock that is Jesus. Amen. Great. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>